I've been looking forward to this series for a long time. Today we begin, actually, next week we'll actually begin. This is the kind of prologue or introduction to the series that we'll launch into next week on, uh, on September 6th. Uh, today we're going to take uh, an elevated look, like a 20,000-foot look at the Bible from the, the beginning to the end. The, the Bible is one incredible epic story that God has written for us to find ourselves in. Each week, we're going to look at some of the signature stories that go along with this unfolding drama. Uh, We're not going to spend much time in any particular book of the Bible. Uh, We could spend a lot of time in just one book of the Bible, if you remember Matthew in the 63 weeks that we spent in that book. So in seven weeks, we're not going to cover a lot of the depth of Scripture, but that's not the purpose. The purpose is to give an overview. When I was in college, a professor made a statement that intrigued me. He, he felt there were six major movements of Scripture. And over the course of time, as I've looked at the Bible, I, I, I've added one to it. Seven's a more biblical number anyway. And I believe that from Genesis to Revelation, there's seven major segments of Scripture that all build one upon the other to tell this amazing story. Now, many of you, um, when it comes to the Bible, find it overwhelming and intimidating, Maybe you are one of those brave souls who decided at the beginning of one year that you're going to read through the Bible from cover to cover. And so you dove into Genesis, and you were enthralled in the stories written there. But before long, you ended up in the book of Leviticus. And all the rules and regulations about dietary things and bodily fluids and all that stuff just got you turned off. And if you're able to plow through that, you got into some more drama with um, kings and chronicles and those books. But then you hit the prophets and, and the condemnation and judgment and the dry bones and all those things you found lacking again of the excitement that you needed. And so you put the Bible back on the shelf. Many of us have just never gotten real familiar with the Bible. We know some stories in the Bible. We know some select verses in the Bible. Maybe we know some sections or chapters of the Bible. We just don't know how it all fits together. The Bible is a fascinating book. I know there are some out there today uh, who will tell you to stay away from the Bible, that if you take this book seriously, it'll turn you into a religious zealot. You'll be dangerous to society. But I find that people who truly take this book to heart find their lives changed dramatically. There's no book like the Bible. It's the most popular read book, the biggest selling book of all time. Even one presidential candidate has been very open to say it's his favorite book. Though in question, it's kind of doubtful that it actually reads and follows what the book says. But my desire for you is that you would read it. And you would follow what it says. And you would see that God, through his word, is, is working a transformation within your own heart and soul. And so we're going to spend a concentrated time over the next several weeks. Because we want to hear God's voice through this book and to know his heart. And the amazing thing is that it's in this story that you find your own story. I didn't know that for a long time. But this book is not just about God, it's about you. And so I want to take a moment as we rise up in the air, kind of 20,000 feet up. It's a little scary up there. I think it's a good time that we just stop and we pray. So let's do that. Father, as we step back and look at the sacred book called the Scriptures or the Bible, we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us. We pray that our hearts would be softened to your message. We pray, Lord, that if we've been discouraged from things of the past, that we'd be encouraged to open it again. And, Father, that we truly could hear your voice speaking through the pages of this book. Bless us now as we open your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The Bible 
is a book, but it's actually a collection of 66 separate books written by some 40-plus authors over a few thousand years in three different languages. It has stories and statistics, hymns and histories, lists and lamentations, proverbs and prophecies. Yet all of those weave together in a beautiful way to tell one story. What we would call a meta-narrative. A meta-narrative is the grand story over Scripture. It's the big story about our lives that God is telling. And like I said, it's in this story where we find our story. The Bible has an amazing way of speaking into our hearts like no other book. And when you truly surrender yourself to the Lord and seek to listen to this, you will find this book penetrating the deepest parts of your mind and your heart and your soul. This book is a powerful book. It's, it's a sacred book. As we can hear God's voice speak to us through this. This book will expose, expose your flaws, challenge your prejudices, affirm your identity. It will give you hope in despair, comfort in suffering, and wisdom in decision making. It will nourish your soul, clarify your calling, enlighten your mind, and save your life. And so what I want to do today is prepare you for what's to come in the next seven weeks and give you four characteristics of this book, the Bible. First of all, there are many writers, but just one author, God. Many of the authors of the books of the Bible, we know because they're stated right within the letter, you know, a letter of Paul to the churches, so we know who the author is. Others, just because of the style of the writing or some other reference, we can identify who it is. There are some 40-plus authors used to write the Bible. And God has chosen, rather than to dictate the Scriptures, to write through people, using their own language, their own personalities. He could have done it miraculously, but as God always or at least most often seems to do, he uses people to do his work. And so you can read through the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, and see a certain style of writing by Moses, and then you go to the Psalms written by David for the most part, and you'll see a different style of writing there, and then you go to the letters of Paul to the churches, and it's another style of writing. But in all those styles and personalities, God's voice is heard through the Scriptures. Now here's the question that often comes up. How in the world could God take sinful men to write a perfect book? I mean, after all, men are flawed. Men make mistakes. Men have prejudices and biases, and, and I admit that's true. In fact, when the Bible was written in original languages on scrolls, they didn't have Xerox copiers. So in order to uh, make copies, they did them by hand with ink and pen, just a few letters at a time. And oftentimes they found in comparing manuscripts with manuscripts that numbers were translated or written incorrectly or a, punct a punctuation mark was missing or something very minor was absent. That's the human error. But, you know, in all the manuscripts, the thousands and thousands of copies of Scripture over the centuries, that they found no major doctrinal difference in the, in the manuscripts. God used people to write this book called the Bible. And you have to admit that even though we are sinful, we do have moments of perfection. For example, you go to a restaurant, you order a steak, and the chef prepares it. You want it medium rare, seasoned just so, and it comes out, and your compliment to the chef was, it tastes perfect. Or you receive a card from someone in a time of need. And you compliment them on the words they wrote in the card because you say, you just wrote the perfect message to me. 
In bowling, there's such a thing as a perfect game, a 300. In baseball, you can pitch a perfect game, meaning no runner actually reaches first base in the entire game. Every batter is out. And so there are moments in our lives where we actually are perfect. Now, the problem is we're not that way consistently, and oftentimes, even in our best um, conduct, it is tainted by our motives. And yet God chose to use men, men who are under the influence, not of the spirits, but of the spirit. Second Timothy chapter 3 says it real clearly. It says, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Some of your Bibles will say, all scripture is inspired of God. Now, that's not always the best word because when we think of inspired, we think of someone who's energized, of someone who who just has a a sharp mind at the moment. But it literally means God breathed, that God's breath was in the making of Scripture. Now, when you speak, your breath comes out. When God speaks, it comes through the writers of Scripture. They were guided in their writing by the Holy Spirit. In 2 Peter, Peter writes this in chapter 1 where he says, above all, you must understand that, that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God used a ghostwriter, a holy ghostwriter. You know, my... Um, my wife's aunt had a friend down in Arizona when we lived there. Her name was Georgia Lynn, and she was a ghostwriter. In her home, she had separate rooms that were designated to different people she'd write for. And a ghostwriter would often write for someone who's maybe a speaker and travels a lot and doesn't want to take time to write, or, or someone who just isn't skilled at writing but can tell a story. And this person learns that personality and learns um, the, the kind of stories that person would tell, and they would write in their place. And so this gal would actually go into these different rooms in her house that were designated for different writers. So uh, she, would, she would put things in that room to get in the mood. And I don't know who she wrote for, but for example, she might go in one room that has some Western uh, paraphernalia because she was going to write a Western. And over here, there was some historical things because she was writing a true history. And, and over here was a room where she would go in the mood to write a mystery. And so she would get in these different rooms to get in the mindset of that person. Well, God used the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit then was his ghostwriter, the Holy Ghostwriter, who then d- dwelt different spaces, dwelt in the heart of Moses, dwelt in the heart of Solomon, dwelt in the heart of David, dwelt in the heart of Paul as they wrote Scripture. And so God communicated through men, through the presence of the Holy Spirit, the words he wanted written. Now, the Bible came to be because certain people acknowledged that certain writings bore the mark of sacredness. And so in the early years of the church, they developed what was called the canon. The canon were the approved books, the books that marked authorship and authenticity, and they were included in the Bible. Now, some other churches add some different books to it. They're called the apocryphal books. There are books where maybe the authorship has a big question mark over it, or maybe there's some content that's questionable. And so the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church includes in the middle of their Bible a section called the Apocrypha. And we don't know for sure if those were sacred, but church history has looked at these books that are in your Bible as bearing the mark of authenticity. Many writers 
but one author, God. There are many stories in the Bible, but one message, a message of redemption and glory. You probably grew up like I did hearing Bible stories, maybe in Sunday school or um, maybe your parents told you stories of Adam and Eve in the garden or Noah and the big flood, um, Joseph and his coat of many colors, David and Goliath, Jonah and the big fish, birth of Jesus, the feeding of the 5,000, raising of Lazarus, all these stories. And the danger is you can see the Bible kind of like Aesop's fables. It just has a bunch of good moral stories compiled in it. And while these stories do inspire us, there really is a message that kind of ties all of these stories together. They are a substory in the big story. And the big story is a story of redemption and glory. Most worldviews are circular, meaning things just continually repeat themselves. There's a cycle, karma. It just goes all around and around and around and around. But the Bible is not like that. The Bible presents a worldview, a Christian worldview, a Jewish worldview, that says there was a beginning point to our existence. And there is a destiny where we're heading. Life is linear. It moves along this plane. It's moving in a direction. And we're accelerating as time goes by to get faster and faster and closer to this destination. It began in the garden where God made Adam and Eve. And through their rebellion, brought sin into the world. And so God made a covering for Adam and Eve. And he slayed an animal to get their hide in order to cover them. And they realized that there's a price to be paid to cover their guilt. And God made a promise to them that he would raise up one who would crush the serpent's head. Through the flood, God revealed that he not only judges sin, but he gives grace to sinners. And through Moses, he pledged a covenant that God promised that he would bring a blessing through Abraham's seed that would bless all nations on this earth. He gathered together a people, gave them a law, gave them ceremonies and and symbols. And so they sacrificed animals regularly to remind themselves that, that there is a penalty for sin. And yet God was going to bring one who would actually pay for their sin. And so when Jesus entered onto the scene... A teenage girl named Mary was pregnant, and she was told, you are to name your little boy Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Thirty years later, his cousin John the Baptist sees him coming to the Jordan River to be baptized, and John the Baptist says to him, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus then was arrested, crucified, buried, and raised from the dead, and people began to tell others the message of hope that Jesus died for their sins, that, that they can be forgiven. And so people by the thousands surrender their lives to Jesus Christ and begin to propagate this message wherever they went. And yet there's a, a group of believers living in Rome where there's great persecution, where they're suffering because of their loyalty to Jesus. And they're told in the book of Revelation to trust in the one because in the end, the lamb defeats the dragon and all who trust in him live happily ever after. And this is the drama unfolding in scripture. It's a story of redemption. And it's not only a story about God, it's a story about us. There is the redeemer and there is the redeemed. There is the rescuer and there is the rescued. And it's because of us being rescued that our response to God is one of praise and glory. How else can you respond to one who loved you so much that he was willing to give his life for you. Jesus is the focus of the story. In Psalm 46, verse 10, Korah is writing in this psalm of how people should come and hear the wonders of God. And he says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. 
See, God's not content to be confined to people who go to church. God wants to be glorified in every nation on this planet. Why? Because he loves all people. God wants his glory to fill the earth. God will keep driving us, driving his church outward until the whole earth acknowledges who God is and what God deserves. God wants all nations to know him. He wants all people to surrender to him. It is the theme of this epic story. You might remember in 2009 when U.S. Airways Flight 1549 took off from LaGuardia Airport. It was piloted by um, um, Chelsea Sullenberger. He was the captain of the plane. And as it took off, it ran into a flock of geese. And some of those birds were sucked into the engines and shut them down. And within just a few minutes, they realized they were in danger and they needed to bring the plane down, but they didn't have enough time to get back to the landing field. So they made a quick decision. They were going to land it in the Hudson River. And Captain Sullenberger miraculously landed that plane so safely on the Hudson River. It did not hit a boater on that river, and nobody inside that plane died. There was a few minor injuries, but all recovered from it. It was called the Miracle on the Hudson. A few weeks later, the crew and the passengers all gathered to remember that event. You know what happened when they gathered? One by one, they sawed out Captain Sullenberger went up to him, thanked him, embraced him with tears in their eyes, saying, thank you, you saved my life. Because it's the only natural response to someone who lays it out for you to save your life. That's why we come together to worship. That's why worship will be such a significant part of eternity, because we will be giving thanks to our Redeemer. It is the theme of Scripture. God deserves our praise. It's not because God has a big ego. It's not because God is arrogant or proud. It's simply because there's no one like God. Remember when um, Moses was sent to the Egyptians? There was a message God repeated again and again through Moses' interactions with Pharaoh. God was going to bring, bring plagues, and God was going to do miracles in his midst. And God wanted to show Pharaoh this. Now, Egypt was filled with gods. Egypt was filled with all kinds of gods that they worshipped. The frogs were gods and the bugs were gods and all kinds of weird gods that really aren't gods. And through Moses, God said, I want Pharaoh to know that there is no one like the Lord God. There is no one worthy of our praise like the Lord God. And you find that again and again in Scripture. When the three men were thrown into the fiery furnace, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, when they came out, King Nebuchadnezzar said, I want everyone to know this. There's no God like this God. See, God wants to be glorified for who he is because there is no one like our God. There's no one who humbled himself and went to a cross for sinners like our God. One of the earliest church hymns is found in Philippians chapter 2. The second half of that hymn says these words. Therefore God exalted him, meaning Jesus, to the highest place and gave him the, the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What the, the picture he has there is when you grasp the cross and what Jesus did, when it penetrates your soul, that your body starts to tremble, that, that your knees begin to buckle, and your lips begin to profess that Jesus is Lord, and it gives God great glory. 
That's the theme of Scripture, that God gets all the glory. But the beautiful thing is you and I get to participate in this redemption story. Each week, we're going to cover a part of this epic story. And, and just real quickly, I'm not going to go into these in detail, but the, this is what we'll be covering in the next seven weeks. And I hope you'll be part of it as we see how God is glorified all through the Scriptures. It starts with creation. It's followed by the period of corruption. And God brings a covenant for his people. There's a long period of time of repetitious conflict and captivity leading to the time of Christ. And then the birth of the church. And finally, it culminates in the conquest. And that is the grand story we'll be looking at over the next seven weeks. There is one author, God. There is one message, redemption and glory. And there's one leading figure, Jesus. Great movies... Often have a leading character. It might be uh, Captain Jack Sparrow or Dirty Harry or James Bond or Katniss or Batman. You know, great stories have a leading figure. I have got to be a leading figure a couple times, once in junior high and once in high school for a school musical. I had to memorize lines. I um, had to sing a song once. Even had to learn to do polka, you know, and a... And a Kind of embarrassing when you're in junior high having to dance with a girl on stage. But obviously that didn't work into a career for me, so I became a pastor. But, but in this story, there is one figure that stands out. I mean, you go through the Bible, there's thousands of names. And a lot of characters, some real good, some we'd call heroes, and some are villains. And some actually are both. One moment they're, they're Mr. Jekyll and one moment they're Mr. Hyde. And we see that in Scripture. And I think the reason we identify with the characters of Scripture, and this is something so beautiful about the Bible, the Bible is brutally honest about people's flaws. It doesn't try to gloss over them, but lays them out. And I think what we like about that is we can see ourselves in their struggles and their temptations and their challenges. We identify with them. But there is one figure in Scripture who's unlike all the others. Even though this person is a man and identifies with man, he's more than a man. And he's different than a man. He's different in his origin. He's different in his purpose. He's, he's different in his abilities, and that is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the leading story of Scripture. One time Jesus was, after he rose from the dead, came across two disciples on this road to Emmaus. Now, they were downcast because, well, so many had put their hope in Jesus. They believed that he was going to redeem Israel. So as they're going along, Jesus comes. The Bible says they were kept from recognizing him, and he listened in to their conversation. They were lamenting the fact that just a few days before, Jesus was crucified. And as Jesus begins to question them, they say, you know, things have just gotten worse. We thought he was going to be the hope of Israel, and now people can't even find his body. It's gone. And then Jesus, it says, kind of rebukes them and says, are you guys so foolish you didn't understand the scriptures and, and what the prophets had told you? And then Jesus, this is, so, this is so beautiful. Listen to what Jesus did. It says in Luke 24, in beginning with Moses, that's the beginning of the Bible, and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. What Jesus was saying is that he is the focal point of scriptures. He's not just a a subject in there that the scriptures all pointed to this time and this day. 
And how you relate to this character is so significant. Because you have a lot of people in the Bible you can read and you can forget and, and, and move on. But how you respond to Jesus has a big impact on your life, both here on earth and even more importantly, forever. When you step back and look at Scripture from Moses and the prophets, and I would add even now the New Testament, you'll see Jesus showing up in ways that maybe you didn't see before. Uh, there's a study out many churches are using today called the Gospel Project, and they put together this video to portray this image of Christ that's, that's kind of the backdrop to all of Scripture. So watch this. 66 books, dozens of authors, a holy canon thousands of years in the making. Consider the works, accounts of history and law, prophecy and poetry, verses of wisdom and letters from friends. Now, look again. What do you see? Behind the fallen creation, where the first son, Adam, led all humanity astray, there is the faithful son, a new Adam, who fulfills the promise and crushes the serpent's head. In the waters of the flood, just as God used Noah to save his family from judgment, there is a greater vessel by which all God's children are saved. On the altar of desperation, just as Isaac asked his father, where is the land for the sacrifice? Comes the answer from the wilderness. Behold the lamb. For a thirsty people, just as Moses struck the rock in the wilderness, there is a rock whose living water satisfies forever. In the battle against Goliath, where an unlikely king became a champion for his people, we see the shadow of a greater king who defeats sin and death to claim our victory. In the long exile of a people, Isaiah's eyes were opened to a vision of salvation and the eternal journey of God's people to the promised land. Until finally, in humble manger lay the hope of the world, the king who reigns from a throne of straw to Calvary's cross to the deathless tomb of eternal Easter. Every story casts his shadow. Every word, every verse bears his testimony. The Holy Messiah, Jesus Christ, eternal King. This is the Gospel Project. You, know, you go through and just look at the characters. Moses, who was a prophet and the great deliverer, said there was one coming who was greater than he. Samson, who won many battles, won his greatest battle when he died and brought down the columns of the pagan temple and, and killed many. Symbolic of Jesus, whose greatest victory was not found in his life but in his death. And then we have Jonah. Jonah was trapped in the belly of the whale or the big fish for three days and then came forth to preach a message of repentance to the Ninevites. And Jesus said that's, that, that was symbolic of him because he would be buried in the belly of the earth for three days and rise to give a message of repentance for all nations. We see Jesus foreshadowed again and again in the stories of Scripture. We see it in the symbols and the customs that God gave his people Israel from the sacrifices of animals and how they pictured the coming Jesus to the temple, to the feast, like the feast of Passover, even to to the day of Sabbath, where the Bible says that Jesus becomes our place of rest for eternity. They all go back to this simple story of the central figure of Scripture, Jesus. It's all 
about Jesus. Well, you might ask them, though, where do we fit into the story? Well, Jesus is the leading figure, but his supporting cast is the body of believers. We are, when we follow Jesus, when we surrender to him, part of his cast. On Thursday this week, I spent uh, part of my day on a prayer hike. Our staff takes a day off uh, once a month to get away and just talk to the Lord and still ourselves. And I went over to the uh, Palmer Park area. I don't even know the exact vicinity, but I was up on some ridges walking around praying. And there came a place toward the end of my prayer time that I, um, I began to have a very honest prayer with God because, um, you know, sometimes things as a senior pastor get, get pretty heavy. And right now we've got a wedding in our family that we're getting ready for and we're kicking off this series and there's always um, church health concerns and there's financial concerns and I'm thinking about not only this weekend's message but next weekend's message and the next series after this and then there's Christmas and the new year and Easter and next summer and all these things and sometimes I say, God, you know, I'd be okay just to be a number two guy. Because, you know, I knew guys in Bible college, they wanted to preach, they wanted to lead a church. That wasn't me. I, I've always been a, a little more of a behind-the-scenes kind of guy. I'm okay being out of the spotlight. I'm okay not getting the criticism. I'm okay just supporting someone else's direction. I'm actually pretty good at that. And so I said, God, you know what? Maybe I'm in the wrong place. Maybe I shouldn't be doing what I'm doing. So I, I just want you to know that it's okay with me if you want me to be a number two guy. I'm okay with that. And, uh, and I'll do whatever you want me to do. And just as soon as I finished that prayer, it was like the Holy Spirit began to rebuke me with these words. Whoever said you were number one guy? Whoever said you were number one guy? I've always been number one. You've never been number one. Nobody's been number one except my son. And he is the leader of his church. And you listen to him, and you do what he says, and you'll always do the right thing regardless of your position. See, you and I were called to listen to this authority in our lives, to follow Jesus and be, be the ones who are putting the spotlight on him. We are truly his supporting cast. We learned that last week. We talked about how Jesus came to build this church. And how Jesus handed over the keys and said, you know what, you guys are going to be the subcontractors for this church. You're going to build it with me. And so this amazing truth of Scripture is we get to be co-laborers with God in the building of his kingdom on this earth. In 1 Peter chapter 2, it describes this collection of people and how we are going to make known his greatness among the earth. It says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. God wants us to live lives that bring him glory and to carry that message to the ends of the earth. This epic story is about God, but it also tells who we are, how we got here, what we're supposed to be doing, how to fix what's wrong, and ultimately where we're going. In it we find our identity, our purpose, on our destiny. Here's the mistake that I think many people make. They study the Bible like a textbook, looking at the stories and trying to figure God out and all these things, and they miss hearing about themselves in the midst of this great story. You and I have a choice. You can either be part of that supporting cast or not. 
And your choice will either be to be a character in the story or to be a casualty of the story. Because how you respond to the story affects the rest of your life. When you get to the end of the Bible, what you'll find in the book of Revelation is all of the supporting cast finally gathered together, one great party, gathered around the throne where God is seated and next to him the Lamb who is Jesus Christ. And what are we doing? We're giving him glory forever and ever for the redemption we've received through Christ. What a story that God is telling. And what a story we're going to look at over the next several weeks. And so I want to ask you if you'd do three things. That you'd make a commitment that in regards to this epic story, that first of all, you would learn it. You'd make a point to say, God, I want to learn the story. I've never really known the story. I want to learn it. I want to get the handles on the story so I know how, how all the other stories fit in. Make a commitment to learn it. And you know what? We have um, tables out in the lobby today. It's Connection Sunday. And we'll have it again next week. And where you can go out and sign up to be part of a life group. A life group that actually takes these messages and dives in deeper in Bible study and, and tries to understand and soak up in their lives what God is trying to teach them. Every, every message starting next week will give you in the bulletin five readings, five scriptures or sets of scriptures that you can read Monday through Friday to meditate on what God is saying about this subject. You can go on our Facebook page starting um, Labor Day, the 7th of September, and we will put on there uh, kind of a devotional thought or reflection on that scripture that we're reading that day. Various members of our church will share with you. So learn it. Secondly, love it. Love it. I have grown to love this book. There is no book like the Bible. It can be overwhelming at first. It can be tough to understand. But the more you get in, it grows on you. And pretty soon, you find this book having such a sweetness about it. You know, David said it's like honey to the taste. It it fulfills. It satisfies. Jesus said you can't live by bread alone. You need the word of God. And so learn to love it. And then, most importantly, live it. Learn it, love it, live it. The Bible wasn't meant to be figured out. It's not like we go to a Bible study to learn the Bible. We go to Bible study to learn about the God of the Bible. God's not impressed with Bible knowledge. God's impressed with our surrender to the truth we find as we study the Bible. Ultimately, it's written not just to see things, but to live things. So we want to live it out. You know, for the longest time, when I was growing up in church, the Bible that I had was this big, fat, thick Bible. And I knew it had stories of Jesus and other religious people um, from dusty days, way in the past. What I didn't realize was I would find the greatest truth about myself in that book. And what I found as I got to know this book was that God was on a pursuit that began in the Garden of Eden. That God has been searching for man. That God has poured out his love by giving us this incredible place to live. But all through history, men have spurned his love. Men have rejected his love. Men have crucified his love. And yet God continues to persist in his relentless love for us until the one day he hopes that you and I would turn around and surrender to him and love him back. And you're going to hear that story when you get to the end of the story. I hope you'll go, wow, that's the God I want to worship. But you know what? You don't have to wait to the end of the story to surrender to the Lord. Because I just gave you the Cliff's Notes version today. It's as simple as that. Jesus died for your sins, rose from the dead so that you can have life, so you can live your life, not for yourself, but for him. And so I'm going to invite you today. In fact, I'm going to ask everyone to stand right now for our prayer partners to come forward here. I want to invite you to make Jesus Lord, to make your life all about being number two, 
that you are second and he's number one. To surrender yourself to him. Because the Bible says if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, guess what will happen? You will be saved.